you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 14. And so today we're going to begin a series, five sermons, um, talking about uh, our core values. And so, kind of give you some background of where this is coming from. You probably noticed in the windows and in the hallway into our Christian Life Center, um, you, you've seen these five core values in our mission statement, uh, either in the window or on the wall. And so, 13 years ago, uh, when I first came here, June, June the 8th, 2008, um, we set forth a mission statement that we were going to... Um, follow as a church. And that was a simple mission statement that said, we exist to glorify God by making mature those who believe. And over the years, at various times, we've gone back to that mission statement and we've preached on that mission statement, where it comes from out of Scripture, out of Colossians chapter 1. And, um, but over the last several years, in having conversations with different people within the church, uh, the question that, that has come up is, how do you measure the maturity aspect? H how do you know if a person is maturing? Or how do you know if you as an individual are really growing in Christ? And so, uh, you know, the answers to that have, have varied. Um, and yet they, they pretty much stayed the same. And one is obedience. Obedience is one of the greatest ways to know whether you are growing in spiritual maturity. And so, uh, obedience to what? Obedience to the teachings of Scripture. And so we've looked at various teachings of Scripture that uh, Christ uh, calls us to. Another way that we have uh, put forth, as we did a series on the fruit of the Spirit uh, several years back out of Galatians chapter 5, is, you know, is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? And that fruit, it's not fruits. Those nine are not individual fruits. It's, it's a singular word in the Greek language. But that fruit is, is borne out in, in, in kind of non-unique ways. But yet, we learned a big word. I don't know if you remember this word, concatenated which um, these nine fruit are all interlinked together. You don't grow in love and not grow in peace, or you don't grow in peace and not grow in joy. Uh, you, you can't have joy, and you can't be growing in joy and not growing in long-suffering. Su they, they all grow together. And we said that one of the best ways to kind of gauge spiritual growth is to ask somebody else. Not, don't ask yourself. Ask someone else. Why? Because a lot of times we can overinflate our own spiritual growth. And, and sometimes we underestimate our spiritual growth. And the analogy that we used was uh, if you could go back to when you were a kid and you, maybe you had a family reunion and, and it was the first one that you know, you've had in several years and you go to it and your aunts and your uncles are there or other family members and they're like, oh, Jason, you've grown a foot since the last time I saw you. And you're like, 
I don't really feel like I've grown a foot. Have I grown a foot? Have I not grown a foot? Um, you know, where other people can see something happening in you that you may not be really aware of that's actually happening to you. And so we said asking other people, and that's why it's so important to be involved in a church and to, and to develop Christian fellowship with each other. And we talked about accountability partners and, and so forth and so on. All of these aspects that really help us to understand, am I really growing spiritually? Well, the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, maybe there's, more, there, there's even a more tangible way that we can measure spiritual growth. And so basically, these five core values that I'm going to present to you in the next five weeks kind of become, uh, you know, that yardstick in your life that you can kind of take a look at and ask yourself, uh, how am I doing as it relates to these five values? Are these values being exercised and lived out uh, in my daily life or, or consistently in my life? And the consistency or the inconsistency of that can be a great determination of where you are in the spiritual maturation process. And so today we want to look at just core value number one, which is simply this, found people, find people. Found people, find people. So before we read Luke chapter 14, I've got a couple of verses that I, I need to kind of set forth some good theology here so we all make sure that we're on the same sheet of music and that we have this that we have the same biblical perspective here and that is no one finds god bad english coming up he ain't lost no one finds god because he ain't lost that's there, there's even a, there was a great song written back in the 1990s that christians loved to sing and it was called uh, I found Jesus. I don't know if y'all know that song. It's a catchy little uh, dirge that caught on and was became a, a, a you know a, a really a hit worship song back in the '90s or maybe the early 2000s. Um, but it's not it's not biblically accurate because no one finds Jesus, and the reason is is because of a couple of verses. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says that the Son of Man Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is the seeker because he's not lost, we are. And then Paul tells us in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. You see, those two verses help us to understand something very important. No one seeks God because sinners don't seek holiness. God is holy. He is without sin. Sinful people don't seek holiness. So we don't seek God because we are sinners, and we don't seek God because of one other verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes these words. He says, In their case, speaking of those that are not Christians, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to do what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So sin and Satan are at work to keep people from seeking God. And so people don't seek God for those reasons. God has to seek us. And listen, 
From the very beginning of your Bible, God is seeking people. He creates Adam and Eve in the garden and Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Adam is created. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that God takes a rib from Adam's side and he creates Eve. And then in Genesis 3, what happens? We find Adam and Eve rebelling against God, choosing to live life according to their own ideas rather than living life according to God's teachings. And so sin enters into the world. And since that time, man has been running from God. Because do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3? When they sin, what happens? They try to save themselves by their own way. They, they create fig leaves and create clothing out of fig leaves to cover up their nakedness because of sin. And then they don't go looking for God. It's not like they get dressed and go look for God. They get dressed and then they hide out. And God comes in the cool of the day looking for them, right? And then he says, who told you to do that? Who told you to cover yourself in that manner? Which is always man's problem because this is what you need to remember. Man is always going to contrive his own method of salvation. And God comes seeking them and he provides for them a way of salvation that is the total opposite of how they tried to save themselves. Do you remember what God does at the end of Genesis 3? He slays an innocent animal, creates clothing, and clothes them in the skins of an innocent animal. Why? Because the Lord is already setting forth how He brings about salvation. The death of something innocent at the expense of those who have sinned. And so, from that time on, God is constantly seeking people to save. Noah, Abraham, on down the list. Not looking for God, God goes looking for them. Same thing once Jesus appears and the disciples. They're not looking for Him. I mean, they are in a way. They're, they're, you know, they are on the look for Messiah. But Jesus has to come and reveal Himself to them. And so that brings us to our text today in Luke chapter 14 because there's a parable that's told here in Luke chapter 14 that reminds us that no one seeks after God and that God uses those that He finds to become instruments that He sends out to find other people. So, let's read the text and then um, we'll... we'll Answer a couple of questions. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and and lanes of the city and bring the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. So there's our text this morning. Oh, let me finish this. For I tell you, none of, these, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I was first introduced to this passage of Scripture as a teenager when an evangelist came to our church. And um, he had, we, we wore these bright uh, neon stickers that said SWAT on it. S-W-A-T. And it stood for Soul Winners Action Team. That was what SWAT stood for. And, um, I mean, this was in the good old days. I mean, I guess that's what we'll call those. This was back in the, the late 80s where you had your fall revival and you had your uh, spring revival. And so our church had brought this guy in. And, and he told us uh, on Sunday morning, he said, Now look, tonight, Sunday night, this was... Sunday through Friday revival. Not, not just Sunday revival, not Sunday through Wednesday, Sunday through Friday. And people were complaining then because it used to be Sunday to Sunday. But we backed it down a little bit. We throttled back to Sunday to Friday. And he said, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to meet me back here at the church this afternoon at 4 o'clock. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pair you guys up in teams and you're going to go out and you're going to find you're going to go to your friend's house and you're going to basically accept no for an answer and bring them back to church tonight to hear the gospel. And he took it from this passage. Go out he, Now that I know what compel means, not really means what he what what he told us it meant. Basically, he wanted us to take no for an answer and just basically uh, kidnap p- kids and bring them back to church whether they wanted to come or not. And on one case, this is no lie, I was not there, but I believe the story to be true, that a couple of guys went to their friend's house and their friend was literally in the shower and they pulled him out of the shower, made him get dressed and brought him to church with a wet head. I do remember his head being wet, but they said they pulled him straight out of the shower and brought him to church. So... Um, Needless to say, it, it, it was very effective in filling up the pews with youth for revival. And uh, during that week, uh, somewhere close to 150 kids uh, made their way to outside of the, our normal group at church, found their way to revival. And out of that number, many of them profess faith in Christ. And out of that number that profess faith in Christ, many of them now uh, serve as deacons and Sunday school teachers and pastors and worship leaders and in other various capacities. Some are just very active in their church, serving in different ministries. This passage is about bringing people to Christ. 
That's what this passage is all about. Now, parables, we have to be really careful with parables because parables may be one of the uh, most easily misinterpreted uh, types of writing within the Bible. Okay, Because what a lot of people like to do with parables is they like to break down each little aspect of the parable and make it mean something. And really, when you get to a parable... There's really a, a, an easy way to kind of look at a parable and make sure that uh, you don't make the parable say more than it says. Okay? That's, that's the danger. Sometimes we make it say more than it says. And really there's four questions that you can ask a parable that will really help you to get at the heart of what the parable is all about. And that's what we're going to do simply this morning. So question number one is this. What does this parable teach me about who God is? Because really, there's only two characters in the parable. There's you, and there's God. Now, he's the number one character, but you're in this parable somewhere. And so what we want to look at first is, what does this parable teach me about who God is? Well, here's what it teaches me about who God is. It teaches me that God's invitation to salvation is far-reaching. The invitation to salvation is far-reaching. Notice what the text says. It says back in verse 16, A man once gave a great, a great banquet and invited many. You see, the imagery of the parable, the many who first were invited refers to these religious leaders that are there. The, the religious leaders that have uh, put together this uh, dinner that Jesus is participating in. And these men had the privilege of studying the Scripture. They, they knew the Bible inside and out. They had memorized large chunks. Some might even have memorized all of the Old Testament. They, they knew Moses inside and out. They knew the prophets and everything that the prophets had predicted concerning the Messiah. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the advantage of being entrusted with the teachings of the Lord. And when the dinner hour came, God sent a messenger, right? His name was John the Baptist. You remember that forerunner? And what did John the Baptist say? He, he has a very interesting quote. John the Baptist said, Everything is now ready. Well, that sounds just like what this story says, right? Come, everything is now ready. John the Baptist says, come, everything is now ready. What? Messiah is here. But the Jewish leaders, they made excuses and they did not come. So the Lord, what does He do? He expands the invitation to the outcast of Israel. The, the very people that John 9.34 says that the Pharisees hated because... They said they were born entirely in sin. Many of them, prostitutes and tax collectors, uh, other notorious sinners, all responded to Jesus' invitation and were following Jesus at this time. This ragtag group of twelve is an interesting bunch. Uh, uh, definitively a group of people who should have never gotten along with each other. Why? Because you had a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. And you had these, you know, these kind of rough and tough fishermen who made up the group. Then you, you, you had another guy 
who was basically a hired assassin who was on Jesus' team. And, and, and guess who he was, his group of people called the Zealots, guess who they were prone to assassinate? Tax collectors. They carried a small knife inside their tunic and they were so well trained that they could walk up behind a tax collector walking in the street and they knew exactly where to stab them in the back to bring about instant death. And yet, we've got a zealot on Team Jesus with a tax collector. This is an interesting crew that Jesus has brought together. Not to count the women that have chosen to follow Christ. The outcasts, the people that the religious people wanted to have nothing to do with. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that, that my invitation to my salvation is far-reaching. But what, what happens in verse 22? Verse 22 says, you know what? There's still room at the master's table. So the invitation even goes wider at that point. It goes outside of the city limits, outside of Judaism. It goes to, God forbid, the Gentiles of the world. It goes out into the highways and along the hedges. At His great banquet, the Lord will have a great multitude which no one can number from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's why this morning we, we, we heard about a part of the world that where the gospel is to some degree non-existent, where people are worshiping false gods or they're trying to eradicate all gods and have no god uh, there. And so... The Bible says, though, that when, when all is said and done, and when, 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 when the final uh, invitee shows up for the banquet, and we look around, and we're sitting at God's great banquet table, guess what we're going to see? People of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Why can missionaries go into hostile uh, countries, uh, uh, hostile as it relates to Christianity, why, they, why can they go in with such boldness? Because they know that the Lord Jesus Christ is already there and at work seeking those whom He will save. Listen, if we don't have that promise, then uh, you've got to be outside of your mind to go to some of these places. It's not that some of these missionaries are so bold and tough he said they just literally take God at His word. I've got people there that I'm seeking. But guess what? I sought you, now I need you to go to be my... Now I need you to go be my instrument to seek those who will be saved. See, what they're going to do is they're going to find the people that Jesus is already seeking and just become the mouthpiece to let them know, hey, God's looking for you. He's looking for you. He's got this big banquet table prepared. And he says, come. He says, come. And that really leads to point number two this morning, and that is, not only is this invitation far-reaching, but this invitation, it's free. It's free. It doesn't, it doesn't cost anything. Look, look at what the text says back in 22 and 23. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. Um... Uh, excuse me, look back at verse 17. And at that time, the banquet, he sent his servant away to say to those uh, who had been invited, come, everything is ready. He, he didn't say, 
Um, you know, look, make sure you bring your five bucks so you can get in, or make sure you bring this so you can get in. It just like he just says, "Come, come, just like you are." At Christmas one year, a pastor hoped to illustrate God's free salvation. He pointed to a beautiful Christmas poinsettia sitting on the platform, wrapped in red cellophane and ribbon, and he said, "Whoever wants this gorgeous flower." may have it, all you have to do is come down and take it. I don't often do illustrations for the reason that you're about to hear in this illustration because sometimes illustrations just don't go the way that you planned. You know, they just don't kind of work out like you intended for them to work out. He waited, but no one came forward to get it. Finally, a mother timidly raised her hand and she said, I'll take it. Great, it's yours, said the pastor. But then the woman nudged her son and said, go get it for me. And the pastor said, no, whoever wants this plant must come and get it personally. You can't send a substitute. The woman shook her head, unwilling to risk embarrassment. She wouldn't go get it for herself. The pastor waited, pointing again to the beautiful plant. That would make a fine decoration in any home. It was free for the taking, but no one was coming up to get it. Someone snickering said, Hey, preacher, what's the catch? No catch, said the pastor. It's really totally free. A college student, now you're going to expect this from a college student, said, Is it glued to the platform? The pastor was tempted to give in, but he thought of the verse that, I mean, everyone laughed. No, said the pastor, it's not glued to the platform. It's just sitting here free for the taking. A teenage girl asked, can I take it after the service? The pastor was tempted to give in, but he thought of the verse, today is the day of salvation, and he shook his head and said, no, you've got to come get it right now. He was just beginning to wish that he had never started the whole thing when a woman he had never seen before stood up in the back quickly as if she were afraid that she would change her mind. She came to the front, picked up the plant, and said, I'll take it. After she went back to the seat, her, the, the pastor launched into his sermon out of Romans 6.23 that says that uh, salvation is a free gift of God. After the service, the people had left. And the woman, she kind of hung around and she came back down uh, to the front to see the pastor. And the pastor, he was picking up his Bible. He was getting ready to leave. And she said, here. And she held out her hand. The flower is just too pretty to take home for free. I couldn't even do that with a clear conscience, she said. The pastor looked down at the crumpled paper the woman had stuffed into his hand, and it was a $10 bill. You see, friends, you can't stuff a $10 bill of your good works into God's hand and pay for his salvation banquet. It's free. I mean, it's absolutely, totally free. And listen, it will never be salvation, true salvation, if it's not free. And it never will be if you don't accept it as free. He provides it all, totally free to you, but it was at great expense to himself. But human nature is so inclined to boast in good works that when you tell people the good news about Jesus, you really have to go through the pains 
to make it clear that the invitation is free. I'll never forget sharing the gospel um, over in the East Aboga community probably 15, 20 years ago now and caught a man out in his yard on a Saturday and started sharing the gospel with him. And he said, let, let me just stop you for a second, young man. He was a much older gentleman than I was, and I was a lot younger 20 years ago. I'd have been in my 20s 20 years ago. Wow. But anyway, um, those were the days. So I, I'm sharing the gospel with him, and he's like, young man, let, 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 me, just, let me just tell you something. He said, you see that house across the street? I said, yes, sir. He said, that man right there is, is well known in the Christian community. And now that this is being live streamed, I'm not going to say what, how he was known, because if I say it, somebody may hear it. Uh, but anyway, he was very well known. And when he called his name, I knew who he was talking about. I didn't know the guy lived there, but I knew the guy he was talking about. He said, you see that house to the left of me? I said, yes, sir. He said, there's a little old lady that lives there. She can't do anything for herself. And she said, do you know that man that lives across the street, that's this big-time Christian, speaks to churches, and blah, 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 blah. Do you know he's never walked, walked across the street and lifted a hand to help that lady, that little old lady? I said, well, that's sad. And he said, well, let me tell you about all the things I do over at that little old lady's house. I cut her grass, I clean her gutters, I've done some painting and this and that. And boy, he just went on this laundry list of all the stuff that he had done for this little old lady. And I just finally, I said, so what's the point? He said, well, he said, do you believe that guy across the street is going to go to heaven? I said, well, if, if his faith is genuine and his sins have been forgiven, absolutely. He said, do, do you believe I'll go to heaven? I said, well, if you've confessed your sins and placed your faith in Christ alone as your Savior, then yes, sir, I believe, I believe you'll go to heaven. He said, well, I believe you're wrong. He said, I'm a good person and my works prove my goodness. He said, I believe because of what I have done, I have proven myself to be good and therefore I will go to heaven. And that man across the street has proven nothing but to be a religious man who does nothing for anyone in need. And I don't believe he'll go to heaven. You see, he couldn't believe that salvation was not based on works, but it was a gift to be received. And no matter how long I stood there and talked to him, the answer remained the same. I'm trusting in what I do, not what in Christ has done. Salvation is free. That's what Jesus is communicating here. There's nothing that you can bring that will get you in to the party. The only thing that will get you into the party is that if you bring yourself with empty hands. The third aspect that this teaches us about who God is, not only is His invitation far-reaching, not only is it free, but His invitation to salvation promises to fulfill. God promises that His salvation will fulfill. 
Notice what it says. It says, come for, back in verse 17, come for everything is now ready. Everything is ready. Everything is complete. There's, there's nothing to do. Jesus says, come to the banquet. And at the banquet, here's what I promise you. I will fulfill everything that you need. Everything. Not some things, not a few things, but everything. Jesus says you'll lack nothing. And that's what salvation provides. It provides everything that we need. G.K. Chesterton once said that he believed that the reason why people pursued the various avenues in life that they pursue, whether it's relationships, monies, occupation, families, whatever it might, whatever it might be that they are pursuing with everything that is within them. He said, really, he said, those people are trying to, to some degree, they are trying to find God. But they're trying to find God through works. They're not, tr- they, but they don't realize that the work, the need that they have has already been done. They, they, they can't do it. They're not going to find it in these places in which they're trying to fulfill the, the desires or the emptiness or the vacuum or the hole that's in their heart. As Blaise Pascal said that man, God created man with this God-shaped hole. And so this morning, whatever you're trying to fulfill your life with, trust me, it doesn't have enough substance to fill, to fill your life. Only Christ can do that. Only He is sufficient enough to quench your thirst and to satisfy your appetites. The second question we have to ask this morning is, what does this parable teach me about what God does? What, what does God do? And this is real simple. Three different times, verse 17, 21, and 23, it just simply, what does He do in this parable? He seeks fellowship with anyone that will come. God seeks fellowship with anyone that will come. The invitation is there, come. I want to be in relationship to you, with you. Why did God come to Adam and Eve in the garden? He, he wanted to reinstitute the relationship. He wanted to fix what was broken between them. Why does Jesus come from heaven to earth? Why? Because He wants to fix what is broken between God and man so that God and man can be in a relationship again. That the image bearers of God being in right relationship with the one whose image they bear. So many people think that God is somewhere off in the distance waiting for us to go after Him and to find Him. And the reality of it is is that there, there is no ladder to climb to heaven, but God has come down. He has condescended from heaven to earth to save to you and I. I have come because I am a God who seeks relationship, seeks fellowship. Don't ever think that God is distanced. Don't ever, don't ever think that God is 
too far away. Don't ever think that God is not looking for you, that He is in some degree repelled by you. Yes, God hates sin and, and He is repulsed by sin, but He has never let the sin of human beings stop Him from pursuing sinners. Two last questions. What does this parable teach me about who I am? So now we know about what it teaches us about who God is and what God does. Same question now to us. What does this teach me about who I am? Well, it, it teaches me that I am either one of two people in this parable. I am either uh, in that group that has rejected the invitation, right? So there's this group, three different people give three different excuses of why they cannot come to the banquet. It's, isn't it amazing that people would turn down such a wonderful offer? Such a great offer? Anybody find that amazing? I mean, the, the word for great is where, we get, is where we get the word mega. This is a mega banquet. I mean, this is like a banquet like none other. And what, is it, what does it remind us of? It reminds us how blinding sin really is. Is that sin will keep you from seeing the beauty of such a great offer. Sin will enable you to reject such a great offer. Let me ask you a question. Have you been rejecting God's great offer of salvation? No matter if you're a non-Christian, you, you've experienced God's grace in your life. You may not have realized that. But the Bible says that God is gracious to both those that follow Him and those that don't follow Him. It says it rains on the just and the unjust. Why do you keep making excuses of why you will not turn and give your life to Christ? But here's what we know. Is that the most common response to God's invitation is not reception, but it's rejection. But then there's the second group of people. And maybe the one that you might most identify with here, you're part of the group that has received the invitation. You've received the invitation. Do you notice who he went to? Do you notice really who were the people that came? The crippled, the beggar. You know who we are in the story? If, if, if you're part of the people that have come to Christ, you were part of that group. You couldn't come to him, so he came to you. He didn't come to us at our best. 
He didn't come to us when we had it all together. He didn't come to us because we had something to give or something to contribute. He came to us to offer us what we could never have on our own. And so finally, this, and this leads us to the last question, what should I do? This is who I am. I'm either, I'm either somebody that continues to make excuses and rejects this incredible offer of salvation, or I'm a part of the group that has received this wonderful gift of salvation. And so what, what does this parable teach me that I should do? Well, number one, it teaches us that you are to quit making excuses. Those of you that continue to reject God's offer of salvation, this teaches you you need to quit making excuses. In 1973, a guy named Gary... Kildall wrote the first popular operating system for personal computers. It was named CPM. According to writer Philip uh, Fiorini, IBM approached Gary in 1980 about developing the operating system for IBM personal computers. But Kildall snubbed IBM officials at a crucial meeting, according to one author, Paul Carroll. The day IBM came calling, he chose to fly his new airplane. The frustrated IBM executives turned instead to a man named, see if y'all have heard of this guy, Bill Gates, founder of a small software company called Microsoft, and his operating system was called MS-DOS. The rest is history. In 2010, Bill Gates was worth more than $53 billion, and Mr. Kildall, who has since died, author Paul Carroll says he was a smart guy, who didn't realize how big the operating system market would become. He missed a huge opportunity. You see, in a similar way, people don't realize how big God's kingdom is and that one day that kingdom, which right now doesn't have a lot of high visibility, will be realized. We'll see it in its fullness. But right now, God is calling and offering to every person an opportunity to be a part of His kingdom. But listen, in closing, that verse 24 is a scary verse. I mean, it's scary. Because look what it says, For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You see, you need to, we need to see ourselves, or those of you that continue to reject Christ, need to see yourselves for who you truly are, someone that can't save themselves. See, God the Father for who, who He truly is, someone who seeks rebels not to take revenge but to provide redemption. Someone who provides a great banquet to fulfill our heart's greatest appetites when He could easily leave us to be destroyed by our own sinful appetites. But I want to say this to you this morning. Even if you believe that, you know what? 
God, I have had the invitation of God's salvation so many times, and I have rejected it. Surely God has done exactly what this verse says, and he has withdrawn his invitation. If you believe that, I want to remind you of one verse in the story. Verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. I believe because you're hearing the hearing. The sermon this morning is the Lord's way of saying to you, the invitation still stands. There's still room enough for you. Even though you've rejected it, maybe hundreds of times, there's still room for you. But lastly, what should those of us that have received this invitation and accepted this invitation, what does it tell us about us? Well, we never quit extending the invitation because we have been found and invited. Now we are, we are sent back out to find those who need to be found. We're now, we now go back out and we keep giving the invitation and we never quit extending the invitation. And here's what we realize. We realize this fact that the most common response to our, to our invitation to trust Christ as Savior is going to be rejection, not reception. When you go on the mission field, right? And you go into some of these hard places like some of our missionaries go into... Guess what they find more often than not? Not people saying, oh, thank you for bringing Jesus. Oh, thank you for telling us about the great banquet that Christ has invited us to. What do they say? <laughs> we don't want that. What do they do? They, they make an excuse. They, there's rejection there. I've read old missionary biographies where some missionaries had gone into certain countries and had spent decades before they saw their first convert to Christianity. Christianity. But guess what? They never quit extending God's invitation to the banquet. They never, quit, they never quit telling people that God desires to have a relationship with them. And He proved His desire by sending His Son to die for them. See, no man can, no man can enter the kingdom without an invitation. And no man can remain outside it but by his own deliberate choice. Our duty this morning is to go out into this world as found people and extend the invitation of God that says that God is seeking those to be saved. We go out and we extend the invitation to the great banquet. I want to leave you with this last thought this morning. So David, if you will, come on. I think Spurgeon said it best. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions 
and let no, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. We must go to sinners if we expect sinners to come to the Savior. That's what he means by compelling. It's not that we twist people's arms and we drag them to salvation. It's not that we manipulate their feelings and get them to pray a prayer or, 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 or to do something emotional to get them to profess faith in Christ. That's not what Spurgeon is saying. What Spurgeon is saying is as people are, are, are walking on the path of destruction, on their way to hell, we should never, ever, ever stop extending the invitation of heaven. We must do everything within our ability, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, to never quit sharing the gospel with those. I don't care if you think, well, that person will never get saved. They're, you know, they're a drug addict, they're an alcoholic, they're an abuser, they're this, they're that. You, you got all, I mean, I don't know. You, I need somebody like to paint a picture of who the candidate of salvation, what a candidate for salvation really looks like. Never underestimate who God is willing to save. And as a matter of fact, if you ever think, you know what, God can never save that person, that's probably the number one candidate that He can save. It's the very one that you don't think He can save. And I don't know, maybe there's some people in your life this morning that you've given up on. You've you said, you know what, I've shared, a, I've shared a thousand times. And they continue to make excuses. Remember Spurgeon's words. Don't stop. Don't quit. Maybe there's somebody that you come in contact with quite often and, and you've, never, you've never shared Christ with that person because you just think, you know what, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. There's, there's no way they'll, they'll, they'll ever trust Christ. That's the person that we need to go to the most. You see, if you really want to know how you're doing in spiritual maturity, if you really want to know if you're growing in your faith, it's not about how many people that you bring to Christ. It's about how many people you bring Christ to. Did you hear that? It's not how many people you bring to Christ. It's about how many people you bring Christ to. So let me ask you that question. How many, how many people are you taking Christ to this morning? And if you say, you know what, I, I don't know the last time. I, I'm not talking about inviting people to church. I'm talking about you as an individual taking Christ to someone. And if you're not, and you can't remember the last time, 
then you've already identified in Sermon 1 an area of spiritual maturity that you're not growing in, you're not maturing in. This is the very basics and the, element, and, and, and the very elementary aspect of what it means to be a Christian, is to be someone who takes Christ to other people. I want you to pray with me. As we pray this morning, if you don't know Christ, if, you, if you're part of that group that just rejects Christ, you say, you know what, this morning I'm, a, I'm done with excuses. Today I see my need for Christ and I see my need to embrace Him as my Savior. I see now that my, all of my works, no matter how good they might be, are never going to be good enough to make me right with God. If that's where you are this morning, I'm not going to lead you in a prayer. I'm just going to simply encourage you to pray exactly what the Lord is putting on your heart. Those words that are coming into your mouth right now, just Pray that, confess that to God. That realization that you're a sinner and that only He can save you. And ask Him to do that this morning. And then Christian, those of you that have already received this great banquet, I'm not asking you how many people you've brought to Christ, but I'm asking you how many people you've taken Christ to. And if you, have a, if you don't have a heart this morning, if your heart's not burdened for those who don't know Christ, I just want to encourage you in these moments ahead that you would ask the Lord to give you a burden to take Christ to others. Father, I can't create a burden with preaching. I can't tell enough sad stories and or, 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 or great testimonial stories of people coming to faith in you to, to stir our hearts because that, that's something that's supernatural. That's something that your Holy Spirit has to do. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that just through these simple truths that, that, that found people go find people and they, and they take Christ to them. And they say, look, there's an invitation. And it's free. And it's everything that your heart needs. Every sin can be forgiven. Every desire of your heart can be met through Christ. Everything that you're longing for, everything that you're looking for, and everything else in this world can be found in Him. Father, give us that kind of burden this morning. Help us not to rely on the preachers and the missionaries and, and other people that we think are super saints to do the work of evangelism. This is all of our work collectively 
as one. And so help us to do that. Help us to see that we can be your mouthpiece, that we can be that servant that can go into the world and invite and, and, and simply take to them your invitation. Give us that burden. Give us that boldness. In Christ's name this morning, amen. Will you stand? Will you sing with us this morning our final song?